You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this episode, I chat with Mark Warner, CEO of ASI, a data science and business analytics consultancy and training organization in London. We talk about artificial intelligence, speculating about the future, and looking at current real-world business applications of AI. We also talk about a survey Mark recently conducted with data science companies in London, where he uncovered a data scientist's skills cap. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining me today, Mark. Uh, thank you for having me. So before we jump into artificial intelligence, let's talk a bit about your background and how you got started, how you ended up where you are. Yeah, uh, well, my background is actually physics. So I did my undergrad and PhD in London, and then I was a research fellow um, at Harvard. And um, inside academia, everyone knows there's this problem. There's way too many PhD students for the number of uh, professorial jobs. And outside academia, everyone's really desperate for very smart people to help them with uh, all their quantitative problems. And seeking inspiration from uh, some courses in Silicon Valley, um, we decided to create a course in uh, London that helped sort of PhDs uh, become data scientists and get jobs with all the really cool um, tech organizations that now exist in, uh, in London. So um, that was, you know, about a few years, a couple of years ago now. And since then, I've sort of been dedicating myself more and more to these ideas around data science. And of course, an absolutely fundamental part of that is in machine learning. And, you know, broadly, so obviously artificial intelligence is a very big topic. Um, perhaps the most fashionable part of it at the moment is a field called machine learning kind of specifically refers to algorithms that learn from experience and data. So, so that I find incredibly fascinating. Uh, there's some really deep questions about, you know, what is intelligence and uh, all the kind of things I think we're going to come on to later. But also there's some, you know, very impactful questions like how do you improve diagnosis or how do you um, improve some company's logistics uh, problem? So, so that was sort of, that's been my uh, sort of trajectory in this sphere. But alongside that, I was always being fascinated by artificial intelligence. And um, I did some work with um, uh, organizing some events in collaboration with a couple of institutes. So the Future of Humanity Institute and, the, and CESA here in, here in London, uh, well, the UK, and the Future of Life Institute in the US. Um, so... So I got to know people like Stuart Russell and Jan Talon through those. And it seemed um, very natural that uh, it would be an amazing um, opportunity for uh, all the audience at Strata to get to see the kind of thought that Jan and Stuart are putting into these big questions around artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Well, let's let's go ahead and, and move on to that then. Um, so at Strata in London, Strata Plus Hadoop World in London, you'll be hosting a couple of sessions about artificial intelligence, kind of looking at it from a couple different perspectives. But before we, we get specific about those, how do you define AI? Uh, so obviously, this is um, a kind of complicated uh, issue. But the, the definition I use, um, or in my head, at least, is that Essentially, intelligence is the ability to drive the world into states that you're optimizing for. So a, a chess computer is sort of intelligent in its narrow domain in the sense that it's trying. Of course, all of this has uh, sort of exclamation quotes around it. It's trying to optimize to win a game of chess. And then what I think people like 
are more broadly thinking about when they think of artificial intelligence is sort of artificial general intelligence, which is being able to optimize over a much, much wider range of scenarios to sort of push the world towards things, um, outcomes that you're interested in. Uh, and then, of course, artificial just refers to the fact that it's, it's of a non-biological nature. And then I guess also um, I like to distinguish between sort of near-term AI and long-term AI. So near-term AI are thing, is things like, you know, autonomous cars and self-driving cars and autonomous weapons and things like this, you know, both still a tool, still has good points or bad points. And then the longer-term AI refer, refers to the kind of more general intelligence idea. Right, right. And kind of along those lines, one of the panels you'll be moderating at Strata uh, is going to look at the debate about the future of AI. So we have those who are in the utopia camp and those who are in the apocalypse camp. Where do you stand on that spectrum? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally that it's difficult to say, difficult to rule out either scenario, really. Um you know, if we create a general intelligence in a safe and beneficial manage, manner, the gains to humanity could be absolutely enormous. You know, it really could be the last problem we ever have to solve. After that, we just you know, spin up our AGI in the cloud and um, you know, basically everything else is taken care of. Having said that, if we mess up this transition somehow and uh, things go badly, it could end up being literally the last problem we ever solve and, and you know, terrible things happen. And, and hopefully the actions that, you know, we can take now have the ability to influence the probability of either outcome. And what do you think is driving the fear of what AI could become? I think, you know, the, the fear of the unknown is always um, is something very natural to us. But I don't think it's entirely irrational. You know, I think there are very sensible fears around the creation of an intelligence that's smarter than ourselves with, you know, kind of an unknown values. After all, the only potentially single uh, trait that humanity has that's sort of placed in this dominant position in the world today is its intelligence. But I do think it's incredibly important that we deal with these, this kind of concern in a sensible manner you know, we should treat it as a problem that's amenable to our normal processes of, of like solving, uh, of problem solving, really, you know, careful analysis, thinking of ideas, building solutions, because a solution is likely sort of contain elements of policy, of technology and, and other ideas that um, no one's thought of yet. And I think there's a bit of a tendency for people when they're thinking about this to overreact and there like could be a few Sometimes you see some fairly silly, fairly harmful reactions. So on one hand, the people who are in the uh, sort of utopia camp just put their heads in the sand and think everything will be fine without any kind of thought. And then there are the people in the apocalypse camp that might consider overreacting and just banning everything to do with machine learning or, or near-term AI. And, you know, realistically, we just kind of have to treat this problem sensibly, like we treat, you know, all of our tools that have great sort of power. We think very hard, we plan very hard and, and, and try and make things as safe as possible. Right, right. Do you think it's even possible for AI to become sentient, like to, to achieve the, the worst case scenario to be in a position to dominate humans? Um, so I don't, I don't think that uh, sentience has a great deal to do with it. And at least I personally don't know how to think about it very clearly. You know, I don't understand particularly clearly what consciousness 
is. But I do think that if you imagine like a sort of chess computer writ large, if it's trying to win a game of like win a sort of universal game of chess, so to speak, and um, winning doesn't include good outcomes for humanity or it's kind of irrelevant if humanity, that, that could be a problem. But I, I don't think we want to think down these sort of evil Terminator scenarios. I think we want to think more like if it was a sort of along the dimensions of a sensible tool, uh, sorry, a, a powerful tool that um, needs to have sufficient safeguards. And, and if you get too drawn into this science fiction world, you're just led to, to come to very funny conclusions that, that aren't going to reflect underlying reality. Because we know that, right, Hollywood optimizes for making things entertaining and not for making things truthful. Sure. And so where do you think we need to go from here to arrive at the best possible outcome? Um, so I've, I, you know, I've thought a little bit about this, and I, I do think that it, it really has to be in the hands of the expert for now that... You know, even in the time that I've been interested in artificial intelligence and, and safety implications, it seems clear that the uh, community, computer science community is engaging more and more with these concerns. And I think really their best place, you know, the community, computer science community that's taking these things really seriously and engaging um, honestly with the problems are, are best place to suggest the way forward. There are people like, you know, uh, Nick Bostrom, who I guess is a philosopher, but and Stuart Russell, um, a computer science professor, who've thought really deeply and carefully about these topics. And I guess, you know, fundamentally, that's why we're running this panel. I hope that like the Strata audience and um, myself will get to really understand what, um, you know, Jan Talon and, and Stuart Russell, two of the leading lights in the kind of computer science and tech industry, think about the, these problems and how we should move forward carefully and sensibly. Mm -hmm. And so we've been kind of focusing on the, the long term potential of AI, but looking near term and even even today, AI has real world practical applications in business. Can we talk a little bit about what about the role AI is playing in enterprise environments now? And, and what do you expect to see in the future? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we see on the fellowship uh, every sort of four months, we work with 15 to 20 of the most exciting um, forward thinking companies in London. And so we see a really interesting cross section of what people are actually doing with machine learning. Uh, and artificial intelligence right now. And it's really exciting. So, you know, conventionally, um, software has been used for decades in the form of expert systems where humans would code in explicit sets of rules. And nowadays, you just don't need to provide those rules. The, the sort of machine learning algorithms can um, uh, pick pick out the understanding themselves from the data. And it's actually much, much more effective. That's the funny thing. And so for things like customer analytics or recommendation or speech recognition or image tagging, like all of these are just being used across more and more domains. And I guess one of the things that I think this enables is, is a continuing personalization of services. So you know, things like smart personal assistance or, or personalized healthcare are all going to be in the relatively short term future of using these tools in, in the commercial environment. Mm -hmm. And so what about longer term? How do you envision business models evolving? 
Uh, I mean, I think this is a, a very difficult but very interesting question. So if we look at a human as sort of an abstract information processing unit, there are a few things we do. We sort of receive information, we store it, we process it, and then we transmit it. And with the advent of the printing press, suddenly we had the ability to store and transmit information with high fidelity and, and at scale. But in all of human history, pretty much all the processing of information that's ever been done has been done inside a human's head. And so it's only now for the first time ever that we can supplement this ability to think, to process information with machines. And that seems to me to be quite a fundamental shift. So I think, you know, actually making specific predictions about uh, these ideas or, or, or where it's going to go in the long term is, well, truthfully, if I, if I knew, if I had a very good sense of it, um, we'd, we'd be already be building uh, towards those ASI. I think there are a few like general, very clear trends that are effectively unstoppable. So the, the volumes of data are ever increasing. Um, there are some facts out there about things like 90% of the data that's ever been created in the whole of human history was created in the last you know, two, three years, something like that. Um, and, and then algorithms are, uh, well, we're getting better at understanding how to train I mean, you know, these kind of neural network algorithms are perhaps not new, um, but we're getting much, much better at using them together and uh, training them more effectively. And people seem to be really, companies seem to be really embracing this idea that um, every decision needs to be backed up with data. So uh, I think the, the sort of cultural shift for um, all of these other two factors, the data and the algorithms to be important is um also happening in front of our eyes and what that leads to well i don't know but i'm really excited to see where it's going and so how should businesses be approaching ai right now like what should they what do they need to know so that they're not taken by surprise or left behind yeah uh so i i think probably the winners um of this shift are are those that are thinking today about which parts of their business are most vulnerable. So, um, and alongside this, obviously investing in things like data collection and uh, fairly sensible ideas around taking their, um, using open source tools and, and cloud infrastructure. It means that um, they're giving themselves the smallest amount of fixed costs to, um, to, to move on any new trends that that come out. I guess this is sort of fundamentally tied to my previous answer in that if you don't think you can predict the exact specifics of what a change is going to be, you want to make yourself as agile as possible to deal with it in the moment. And so it seems like there are some fairly sensible steps that businesses can take to enable them to be agile along these kind of dimensions. And then, you know, at ASI, we've worked with many companies across the entire spectrum from small, tiny two or three person startups to 100 million a year revenue startups, even through to like several billion pounds a year revenue and sort of help them to understand what data can do for them through our data strategy process. So this basically involves helping them to understand whether there are complementary revenue streams that can come through treating their data as a capital asset or by improving their processes or understanding their customers more deeply. 
Um, and, and so we've sort of got our process in place, but I don't think it's anything, um, you know, incredibly special. It's just taking companies through this idea of concretely what is possible in the next five years and how that can affect their core businesses. Mm-hmm. And without naming any names, can you share some specific examples of what companies are doing? Yeah. Um, so uh, we um, work with some amazing companies around the fellowship. And uh, let's take an example of, uh, of, a, of, a, of an airline. Um, they are have actually, you know, as you can imagine, on... Um, on an airline, if you're constantly bringing in food for passengers, um, you have to make sure, well, in, in, in general, you'll bring on some food and sometimes people will buy, sometimes they won't, and you'll end up with food left over at the end. And of course, that's a terrible waste, you know, uh, if you're flying many thousands of flights all around the, uh, all around, um, the world, that adds up to a whole lot of wasted food. And of course, that's cost for the airline, but it's also um, an opportunity to do some good, to reduce uh, waste in the world. And so um, one of the projects uh, that um, we've worked on is to help the, uh, an airline predict actually what, um, what, you know, what the food uh, usage was going to be on a particular flight at a particular time going to a particular place. And that really has, uh, you know, you can you can show that that demonstrates very effective reductions in wastage, which is really cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. So shifting gears slightly, uh, you mentioned the ever increasing volumes of data, and we've been talking about the emerging tech and business. Data scientists are going to become more important than ever in enterprise settings. And recently, you conducted a survey of data science companies in the UK, and you found a skills gap issue. Can you talk a little bit about what you surveyed and the conclusions you made? Yeah, sure. So, so we thought that it was important, given our role in helping um, people transition into data science, to really understand what companies were looking for. Now, of course, there's a bit of a coming from our data science, a data-driven background. It's kind of hard to um, make this super quantitative, but we tried. So, so we did two things. We did a set of qualitative qualitative interviews with sort of twenty to thirty of the top. Um, tech companies in London, and then although actually defining tech companies fairly widely. So I'd say uh, like most advanced data science companies in London. And then we also um, created a range of data science profiles and and asked which, um, you know, which would these particular uh, organizations prefer? What would they like? What do they not like? Why did they pick a particular thing? That allowed us to be take some averages and things, not very deep data science, but, but a little bit better than simply doing everything qualitatively. And we found that um, there really seemed to be two types of background in the UK and London at the moment. Um, essentially, people transitioning from a sort of BI type environment and people transitioning from a deep academic background, like our fellows, maybe a PhD in maths or physics or computer science, this kind of thing. And obviously, um, these two sets of backgrounds have different advantages and disadvantages. So in coming from a BI background, they perhaps don't have the deep technical 
skills, the sort of real um, uh, understanding of, of maths and and um, computer science that come from a sort of PhD in one of those subjects. But of course, they're much more familiar with the business. They're much more familiar with the commercial environment. The academics, on the other hand, have great, great technical depth, but are not used to the commercial environment. Now, the complication that we found, that we saw, was that for people coming from this deeply academic background, um, they were actually limiting their chances to uh, progress because fundamentally inside a commercial environment scale really comes from being able to lead other people and that comes from a combination of soft skills that um, we just don't think the uh, academic environments are doing a very particularly great job of teaching at the moment. Interesting. And so looking at solutions to this, what, what can data scientists do themselves to improve their skills? Yeah, so there's a, a bit of an open question in the sense that it depends on their background. Um, obviously, teaching yourself the technical skills is is not so difficult because there are such tremendous resources available online today. Um, the softer skills are, are kind of harder to learn explicitly, even if you were to find you know the perfect textbook of how to how to operate in a business environment, I'm not sure that reading it is going to actually get you very far. You know, humans tend to pick up these kind of cultural things very um, implicitly and intuitively. Uh, um, so, I mean, obviously there are training programs, but I think the effectiveness of, of some of these is fairly debatable. Even inside ASI, with all our background in data, we're just starting to get to the point where we have sufficient data through all of our fellowships to actually test the efficacy of our programs. Um, so I guess it, it really is a hard problem. Like the, the advice we give to um, academics is to, to try and get out there and um, get some kind of interaction with a real commercial environment um, as, soon as, as soon as you can, maybe inside your PhD or, or um, taking a short uh, sabbatical in the summer or something. Along those lines, of course, in, in our fellowship, we, we like uh, the entire thing is optimized to make this as fast as possible. But without that, it, I think it's kind of tricky. Interesting. And so, what about from the academic side? Does the program, does the training need to change? Maybe adding some more humanities or something like that. Ah, that is a, a great, very tough uh, question. So, um, I mean, I think broadly speaking, uh, the truth is that. Um, the academic world is optimized to do really great research and everything else comes a fairly distant second. And I don't know how I really feel about that. Like uh, the fact that there are incredible scientists that are really um, just given the remit to do incredible science seems like a reasonably good thing. So I'm not even, I think, People need to get trained, but I'm not sure whether the role of research universities actually should be to uh, to provide this training, especially as you know we're proving, and the courses in in Silicon Valley and New York are proving that um, these things can be done commercially, and therefore uh, tend to be a bit more agile, a bit more responsive, a bit more geared to what people actually need rather than what we think they should know and these kind of things. So, so I don't know whether it's a great 
like there is definitely um, a failing sort of in the system, but I don't know whether it should be the responsibility of the research organizations to fix it. Hmm. And so given the, the business implications of this, what, what kinds of things can managers and leaders, company leaders do to help their data scientists? So I think really great managers are um, fairly skilled at helping people learn these things anyway. Um, but I think uh, probably empowering an organization, empowering their data scientists by making sure they're in closely integrated with the front, like the frontline product or services teams, and not um, siloing them into some data science team that never sees the commercial environment can dramatically speed up this process. Like you know, you can pick it up much more quickly if you're interacting on a daily basis with people who are experts in the kind of commercial. Um, side of the business. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So last question for you today, what people or projects are you following? What are you finding personally interesting? Um, so one of the, uh, I guess it's a nice problem to have is that things are moving so fast at ASI. I don't get as much time as I used to, to, uh, follow people, but I, for me, um, I think the blog, uh, slate star codex is the most consistently, uh, provoking and um, thoughtful blog um, that I read at the moment. And then uh, my sort of two classic favorites that I always try to keep up with are Overcoming Bias by Robin Hansen, um, another blog, and uh, Econ Talk, which I think is a, a fantastic podcast with uh, really like Russ Roberts, the, the uh, interviewer is just a, a really great and thoughtful person. Well, great. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Mark. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. It's been fun for me too. You can find Mark through his company website, theasi.co. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Radar podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. <laughs>